0: The listening community of this program. Um, so uh, it, I just I love you guys. Let me just start off by saying that this morning. So we uh, we visited in the last hour a very very brief uh, conversation. I mean it was the it wasn't even like a substantive part of the conversation. But you guys are making it substantive. Um, when we when we present to others what we believe, like what are the first things of the Christian faith. Um, I suggested that we use the Apostles' Creed. Well, apparently, I have a lot of Nicene Creed um, advocates out here as well. So um, the Apostles' Creed is the one that I learned. That may uh, that may give you some sense of I don't know where I grew up or the um, uh, the the content of the conversations in the churches where um, where I was catechized. So the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he arose again from the the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Well, now I have my, uh, my Nicene Creed advocates, and so um, the, uh, I appreciate my Nicene Creed advocates, noting here that uh, it was adopted by the Council of Nicaea in June of 325. And so the Nicene Creed um, it has been around a really, really long time. Um, you may follow the Nicene Creed as uh, adopted by the First Council of Constantinople in 381. So when you say Nicene Creed, all of my Nicene Creed advocates out there, which one are you talking about? The Council of Nicaea, 325 Nicene Creed, or the Council of Constantinople, 381 Nicene Creed? Uh, and so the, the controversies related to this are uh, probably about the Holy Spirit, most often, um, and let me read the Nicene Creed as a way of satisfying my friends this morning. Um, although the page I'm looking at has the Nicene Creed in uh, in Aramean, in Latin, in Greek, it would be helpful if I could get one here in English. Uh oh, Paul, help me out. Why am I having such a hard time? Found in the version of the let's see English versions of the Nicene Creed. Maybe I should have clicked on that first. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> English versions of the Nicene Creed. Bear with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. I think I've read that as very God from very God before. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen, amen, and amen. Bill English will be with me next. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Bill English from com. Welcome back, sir.
2: Hey, thank you. It's good to be back.
0: Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed? I did neither growing up.
2: I, mm-hmm. Both of those are completely foreign to me. I, uh,
0: <gasps> All right. I'm we serious. Are go- well, I, I'm so serious? It- yeah, so it's helpful to have um, some things that um, are singing in the back of our mind, right? Um, right, that we can that we can turn to that help us sort of identify what are the first or primary things of the faith. And so there you go. I mean, some people what rattles around in the back of their head is like the Westminster um, catechism because they were li- literally catechized when they were kids. Uh, and so I'm sure there are a lot of people like one person who texted in, hey, I said the Apostles' Creed right along with you. Um, and then uh Paul Perot was saying, Yeah, I was reciting the Nicene Creed right along with you because those they grew up obviously in liturgical churches where um they were those were recited you know week in and week out, so you know if i if I know what I believe and I can articulate what I believe i 'm more likely to rely on those you know in a time when the world is pressing in against me, so there you go, that was it, okay. I know. I love it when listeners are like, you know, hey, I like this one. I like that one because then I get to talk about it. So it's a conversation, well, not just with you, Bill, but with thousands of other people listening right now.
2: Well, it's it's a conversation that I can't add a lot of value to because I do hey, not grow okay. up in a liturgical church.
0: That's just so. we're just trying to evangelize you to, to creedal Christianity. That's it, Bill. That's why we have you here today. Okay, so should I be okay. a Nicean, a,
2: a Westminster, or a whatever the other one was?
0: Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Be a Christian, man. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> so, so no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying that, like, right when we define Christianity, we need to be able to do so in a way that is uh, consistent with the Word of God and and consistent over time with the you know with the church's understanding of herself. So, anyway, it, oh, sure, it actually all sure. goes back to this conversation I have with George Barnett in the first hour. So I apologize. We digress. No worries.
2: You're fine. Um.
0: Okay. People are really struggling. Lots of people are really struggling in America right now. Um, And so one of the things that caught my attention in terms of the economic realities in America, um, if you're just driving around, you see more and more people, you know, on street corners, in the middle of uh, four-lane roads on, you know, like in a median with a sign, just hungry, lost my job, out of work. Um, Food lines are increasingly long across the country. There's actually a rise of gleaning, which is, you know, something that we know from the Bible, but not something that we have historically seen much of here in the United States of America, at least in recent generations. Talk with us a little bit about the economic realities that people are facing and how local communities are overcoming that.
2: Well, the local <clears> – <throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. The, the economic realities are real. And this COVID thing, regardless of where you, where you land on masks and stuff like that, the economic realities and the economic impact is very, very real. And a lot of people who would never thought that they would be without a job are without a job. Uh, and that's through no fault of their own. And these people, when you don't have a job, you don't have income. And when you don't have income, you can't buy food. And so then you become dependent on others giving you food. So then you start to learn about where the local food shelves are, where the where the food kitchens I can go to. But a lot of these folks are some of these folks. I don't know how many are, but are going to these food shelves, and they're not finding food. <clears throat> and you know what? Without healthy food, you can start to develop chronic illnesses. And over a long period of time, uh, you can develop uh, higher risks for more severe complications of the COVID-19. And so the thing comes full circle. This is a real problem. It, what always what always strikes me, Carmen, is that we we hammer away at the at the right of people to have health care, and no one talks about people needing food, which to me is a much more daily issue for a lot of Americans. And it just seems to me that uh, the food, what they call food insecurity, mm-hmm. is something that, that is really uh, needs to be addressed. And I think churches and nonprofits are addressing it these, these days.
0: Churches and nonprofits are addressing it. When we come back, Bill, let's talk about that. Um, you have right. some, uh, some, some examples where you are. Um, we might highlight some others as well. Um, food insecurity is real for many, many of our neighbors. How are uh, Christians in particular, but communities in general, answering the need, meeting the need of our neighbors? We're going to talk about that next here on Mornings with Carmen. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of Heaven, Maker of heaven. Continuing my conversation with Bill English, we're talking about the very real needs of our neighbors, uh, increasingly hungry, with with less and less access to healthy food in a sufficient measure um, bill let's talk about what we what what people are doing and what we can do
2: yeah so interestingly enough <clears throat> when you when uh, when paul actually offered this idea up yesterday um, i thought wow we're 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 actually doing this here in maple grove and i live in, in a town called maple grove it's a second ring suburb of of uh, minneapolis uh, and uh, eight churches have come together in Maple Grove under a banner called We Love Maple Grove. And the pastors have come together across denominational lines, and as an as a eight-church unit, we are doing a food drive of healthy food for our local food shelf, who is completely inundated with people stopping in to get food and their shelves being bare. And so our goal is to raise 25,000 pounds of food for our local food shelf. This is something that any church could do. This is something that any group of Christians could do, even if their church doesn't do it. If you're in a, a small group Bible study, just call the other members of your study and say, hey, let's see if we can't get a 100 or 150 pounds of food, and let's run it over to the food shelf. Uh, doing that kind of thing is a very tangible, pragmatic doable, uh, repeatable, and teachable uh, uh, effort that, that Christians can do to show love to those who are in desperate need right now.
0: So we had Jim Morgan on the show, I just feel like it was last week at some point, from Meet the Need. And if you are listening right now and you're saying to yourself, gosh, we would love to organize that kind of thing in our community, but that sounds like it takes some technology Um, Maybe beyond what we have or know. Actually, that's what Meet the Need does. So Meet the Need provides provides that free technology and software to churches and other nonprofit organizations who want to do things like we're talking about, which is like organize your entire community or your city or even your state um, to meet a particular need. And they're really adept at doing it in terms of hunger. That was actually their first project was networking um, local expressions of, um, uh, you know, leftover food actually at restaurants and all kinds of things like that and figuring out how to then turn that right around and get it into um, the hands and the bellies of hungry people in communities across the country. So meettheneed.org might be a place that you could go to find some resources if this is something you want to be equipped to do. We Love Maple Grove is a local expression um, right there in the Twin Cities. Um, where you could you could turn to not only for help but you could be an agent of hope, together for good. Uh, another another way of doing this. Bill, you want to talk about together for good?
2: Yeah, our church is a part of this, <clears throat> and it, what, what Together for Good does is that it comes alongside vulnerable families and their children, and it pairs them up with another family who will walk with them through difficult times. Now, most of these vulnerable families are single-parent families, and so what this ministry does, it's really a connector ministry, but it helps provide safe places for the children to stay while their parents receive some much-needed support, respite, and encouragement Uh, To make it through a pretty difficult time. Uh, All of us know, I've been a parent, uh, Carmen, you're a parent. Uh, Those of us who have kids, we know that parents get exhausted, right? We just get Mm. tired. There are just times when, man, would somebody please, as much as I love these kids, take them off my hands for, you know, 24 or 48 hours so I can just get some rest. Exhausted parents need a break. they need a night out. maybe the couple needs a night out or they need a weekend. Maybe they're going to go to some counseling sessions or, or or whatever. So the ministry steps in to provide respite care for the children as well as ongoing friendship at the adult level together for good and it's uh, it's a ministry that our church is a part of here uh, in Maple Grove. I think it is a local ministry here, although I couldn't it is. tell from the website if it was Okay, so
0: here's not. the thing. We've actually had Maridel Sandberg who started this. We had, oh, have had you? her on the show. Yeah, we love okay. Maradel. I lo- I personally love her. Um yeah, and so yes, it is uh, it is at this point in Minnesota. Um, and not elsewhere, but they would love to see the Together for Good model yeah. duplicated in cities and states across the country. So if you're interested in um, what Bill is talking about in terms of Together for Good, it's TF Good, Together for Good, TFGood.org. Um, so I just, I saw that in your notes and I was like, I'm totally highlighting that because I, that's my friend maradell and we can encourage her and I think we need to be doing that.
2: Yes, we do. It's it's a fabulous ministry, and uh, there are a number of of uh, families in our churches that are a part of that ministry.
0: Um, so city gospel movements would be another one that we could highlight. Um, we have mm-hmm. uh, we have had um, folks from city gospel movements on to talk about what they're doing as well. So I think what I hope what you hear Bill and I saying is there are lots of existing ways that you could plug in um, to meet the need in your own community. There are food deserts out there across the country, and there is a lot of food insecurity right now, literally millions of kids going hungry. Um, And just keep in mind, in all of those school districts where kids are not physically going back to school, kids are also not getting the free breakfast and free lunch um, ordinarily supplied to them at school. And so um, just be really, really mindful of those. uh, I know the backpack ministry where they load up backpacks of healthy foods and send them home with kids. Just just be mindful. I don't really know how that works in a COVID world, um, but I'm betting that you could figure it out if you tried in your own local community. All right, um, Bill, it occurs to me that many of the things that we're talking about in, in terms of social safety nets are activated, generated, and resourced through Protestant Christian churches. But those Protestant yes. Christian churches are not only <clears throat> shrinking in size, they're literally disappearing in many communities across the country. Who fills the gap when... Um, when those Protestant Christians and those Protestant Christian churches are gone,
2: well, that's that's a that's a big question, and I would I would just add that a lot of Catholic churches are doing this too.
0: Oh yeah, sorry, um, but, I shouldn't have said it that way. Yeah, thank
2: yeah, you. I, I uh, yeah, I. Some of my best friends are are Catholics, and I'm I'm sensitive to that. So look, uh, what we need to do as a church, because a lot of these younger believers are really uh, unenamored, <laughs> is one word, with the institutional church, and so it just seems to me, and 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 they really shy away from institutional church, from organized church. So it just seems to me that we are going to be forced into it in the next ten years, into changing the way we do church, and I can see easily. Uh, a church having house churches on two Sundays or three Sundays a month and coming together as a larger church like we traditionally do today, maybe once a month. But in those house churches, the younger people are going to feel more connected. It's a more tribal feel. It's a more feel of of something that is, is not institutionalized. And as these young people then get put in touch with needs, real social needs, real uh, needs of disasters, I think they'll be the first to stand in line and say, here am I, send me. And so uh, it, it just seems to me that connecting with that group that shies away from an institutional church and coming up with different ways to connect them to church, capital C, is what we're going to need to do in our polity. And a lot of, a lot of local small-c churches are going to have to change how they view doing church. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're just not going to be able to do church like we have done it for the last 150 years. I, I just don't see that happening.
0: Okay, I want to highlight that very last note, because just because we've done it this way for the last 150 years doesn't mean this is the only way to do it. It also doesn't mean it's the only way it's ever been done. Right. I mean right. I, I, there's a reason there's a reason that we had to build churches. It's because there weren't any, okay? And so um that when you when you think about what Christianity looked like in Acts chapter 2, um there weren't big buildings. There were homes of Christians. And so when when what Bill is talking about here um is a little bit of a going back to the future conversation and how do we you know, in some places and cases return to our roots and recognize that just because we have done church in a particular way um, for a particular period of time in a particular country does not mean it's the only way to do church, nor for this season the right way to do church. And so um, just think that this this diff- effort of diffusion, um, and when every other institution is experiencing uh, disintermediation, like, right, where the where the intermediating institution is actually removed and people are going, you know, sort of more direct access. Um, You know, I I just think that we have to recognize it's happening in the church as well. The church is not immune from that change in the culture.
2: I would totally agree. I I could see us doing churches and restaurants and coffee shops and and other places, even in parks, if you live down south where it's warm all the time. And uh, I I could see us— Really, having small group churches, increasing the number of elders so every every house church has an elder. You're still connected to a larger church, but how people learn, how people grow, how people connect uh, happens on Sunday mornings differently. I think I think we're going to have to go that direction, Carmen.
0: All right. So you've just um, I, I I have this thing, this little curriculum that I used to um, used to use. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago called Sidewalk Sunday School, and you've now like encouraged me. I got to find that. I got to trot that back out.
2: And you know, maybe maybe one of the small groups you have is to teach catechism to those who never had it.
0: Absolutely, right? yes. <laughs> and Bill, you can be in my first group. I love that idea. Okay. All right, I'm there. There, there we go. All right, that's Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Bill, thanks so much. Uh, really, really helpful stuff this morning. We got to take a break for Breakpoint, and we'll be right back. So let me. Ask you to pause for just a moment and consider our need to be rescued. Who responds when we cry out? Now there is a there is a quick Jesus answer for the Christian to that question, but I want you to think about people in the culture who are in all kinds of situations from which they need to be rescued. Who do they call? To whom do they call out? Well, they call nine one one and they are looking for a first responder. They're looking for a first responder to the fire in their life. Um, Well, those first responders need saving too. Jason Sawtel spent 22 years as a paramedic and a firefighter. Uh, Responding to those calls led him deeper and deeper into um, a despair of darkness. But he is here to share his story of redemption, his story of a savior, The book is The Rescuer, One Firefighter's Story of Courage, Darkness, and the Relentless Love that Saved Him. Jason Sautel and I will be right back.
1: After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. This is Max Locato. Now there's something you don't expect to read in the Bible, Jesus spitting. A prayer would have seemed appropriate. Perhaps a hallelujah. But who expected a heavenly spit into the dirt? The God who sent manna and fire dispatched a blob of saliva. And as calmly as a painter spackles a hole in the wall, Jesus streaked miracle mud on the man's eyes. Sometimes God uses the less than pleasant. He initiates the miracle through mud moments, layoffs, letdowns, and bouts of loneliness. Can you relate? If so, do not assume that Jesus is absent or oblivious to your struggle. Just the opposite. He is using it to reveal himself to you. He wants you to see him. Remember, friend, you are never alone. This is Max Locato.
0: Jason Sautel spent 22 years as a paramedic and a firefighter. Uh, he now has uh, a son on the front lines of the fires in Southern California. He joins us today to talk about being rescued himself. The book is "The Rescuer." Jason, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
3: Hey, thank you for having me on.
0: Um, well, so it's a delight. Uh, let's uh, let's touch base first about the situation in California because um, one of the things that we do here on this show is, you know, we take the headline news, we bring the mind of Christ to bear, uh, we're seeking to equip our listeners to walk their faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. And your son is right now um, battling one of these two wildfires raging across Southern California that apparently have doubled, um, tens of thousands of people have been forced to flee. Talk with us just about what it just feels like to be there
3: you know it's it's an amazing feeling to be there because you show up wanting to help people wanting to serve people but when those flames hit the only thing that you think about is safety and protection, protecting the lives of your crew, protecting the lives of those around you and protecting the homes. And physically, it is exhausting because you're up sometimes 24, 48, even 72 hours in the initial stages. And you're just what we call bump and run from house to house that will try to save one house. And once the fire passes, we run and we get in front of it again. And just inhaling the smoke, taking on the heat, just the physical aspects of the job, it's really wearing on the guys and girls that are out there.
0: Um, so, when we conclude this conversation today, I am going to ask you a question about what each and every one of us could do um, for those who are on the front lines. But let's um, let's circle around uh, here to your story because you tell it so beautifully in this in this book, "The Rescuer: One Firefighter's Story of Courage, Darkness, and the Relentless Love That Saved Him." Um, Jason, if you would take us um, to Maybe the period of your own darkness, like, right, when, the, when, when it all mounts up to the place where you're so desperate that you imagine, even as a person who has been saving the lives of others, that maybe your life is not worth saving.
3: You know, it first started when I was a child, and then it worked all the way through adulthood. And while I was working as a firefighter, just the pain of my abusive past was weighing me down. What I had to respond to as a firefighter in West Oakland, California on a daily basis started wearing me down, and I had nowhere to put it. And I remember one day, something just hit me, and I said, I'm going to go to church and when I walked up to that church, unfortunately, they didn't let me in because I'm kind of a casual dresser and I look kind of like your Southern California surfer, if you will. And they turned me away. Mm-hmm. And when they turned me away because I wasn't wearing a suit and tie, that was it. I just felt like I was done. There, there's nothing left anymore. And the burdens had just become so heavy that, that I was ready to take my own life. And it was a really tough time.
0: But God wasn't uh, wasn't done, and He sent nope. someone into your life who helped you. I think see just how precious you are. Like right there's a, there's the influence of a person in this story, um, and this story I don't think would be told without her. So let's uh, let's highlight that that person right now.
3: Oh my goodness, yeah, that would be this uh, young nursing student, Christy. Uh, God put her in my life at just the right time after a series of rough events. And the, the church incident, he put this young lady in my life, and she is the first person that truly showed the love of Christ in her actions, her words, and just the way that she kind of cared for me, and that was 18 years ago. And uh, since then, we now are married. We have four kids, two dogs, and a whole bunch of bills. So <laughs> she's been, been in my life for quite some time. And she uh, she did not, quote, save me, but she definitely the Lord did definitely use her to uh, draw me to him. Uh, and she invited me to church and gave me the gospel message.
0: So um, if we were like Christy's mom at the time, we might be like, okay, that looks an awful lot like missionary dating, and that's a bad idea. <laughs> but God, um, God in this case, um, absolutely used her. And um, and you hear her voice a lot in the book as well. And that is, um, I mean, obviously, her influence is very, very significant. Um, Talk with us about the expectations that we place upon firefighters and other first responders today. I'm thinking, you know, um, you talk about in the years that you spent as a firefighter and paramedic, many of the things that you responded to were not actually physical fires like we're now fighting in Southern California. You share lots of stories in um, in The Rescuer um, of being called to all kinds of other crises in people's lives it takes a toll. Um, Talk a little bit about what people are facing in our communities and then how first responders are also facing those same challenges.
3: Right. Well, the men and women behind those badges, under those helmets that show up to help each and every one of us, they're people. People always like to use the term heroes, and and that's a fine term to use, but sometimes the human gets lost in that term. They have all the same troubles you have. They're in the middle of a pandemic. They're in the middle of all the, the, the crazy political times, but they still have to show up and selflessly serve when someone calls. So our job is To come to your rescue and we never judge how you got where you are we just show up and try to do what we can to pull you out of it now that also weighs you down because when you go on a shooting or a car accident, or even see a loved one of a family member pass away after many years of marriage, and you see the pain, a piece of that attaches itself to you, and it starts to weigh you down too. So so our responders sometimes get overlooked, you know, when we throw the hero term out there, that they also are human beings who feel pain, and they're suffering just like the rest of us.
0: So I'm talking with Jason Sautel, we're talking about his new book, uh, The Rescuer. It is um, his own story of being rescued by Christ. Um, It is dramatic. Uh, When we come back, I'm going to ask Jason to share with us a dramatic story of actually nearly dying in a fire and how that was a real turning point for him. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Jason Sautel. We're talking about his book, the Rescuer, one firefighter's story of courage, darkness, and the relentless love that saved him. You can, um, you can actually find it at rescuerbook.com. Lots of resources there um, for you to check out in addition to the book. So, I encourage you to connect with Jason there at rescuerbook.com. Jason, tell us the story. Um, you nearly died in a fire. Share that story with us, and then um, you know, talk about how that was a real turning point for you.
3: Yeah, so it was approximately 4:30 a.m. We woke up for a smoke in a building, and we went to a downtown high-rise in Oakland. And we got there, we found that there was a basement fire, but unfortunately, we couldn't find the fire right away. So I broke open a door. And told the younger firefighter with me, just hold tight. I'm going to go in and see if I can find where the fire is and I'll come back out. We'll get the hose and we'll just knock it down. And while I was making my way through the building, it was getting darker. It was getting hotter. And my senses were telling me I'm in a bad situation. And although I couldn't find the fire, it ended up finding me. From floor to ceiling, everything just turned to flame. And I was about 100 feet in deep in the building there were no back doors it was a high rise it was also a brick building so I couldn't get out and I've been a little spooked in fires but this was the first time I got scared because I honestly thought I was going to die I couldn't make my way back through the flames I couldn't exit and I just curled up on the ground and all I could think was I don't want to die alone. I don't want to die empty. I don't want to die with this nothingness. And it felt like the emptiness, darkness, and evilness that I had been carrying around my whole life came to a headway right there. And I was feeling eternity and what the pain of eternity was going to be like because the, the heat of the flames were just bearing down on me. But by the grace of God, my crew knew that I was in there when they saw the flames light up. They pushed through and they saved my life. And when I came out, I realized after the fact that I was in a bad situation, I probably wasn't going to die because they were coming to get me. But in that moment, I still couldn't shake the feeling that I didn't want to live alone anymore. And just prior to this fire is when Christy invited me to go to church. She actually said – I'm going to break up with you if you don't go to church with me. She never said I'm going to break up with you if you don't accept Jesus. But I went to church with her, and I heard the gospel message, and everything just started coming together and it was at that point in my life, after twenty eight years of walking in the darkness, I said, "All right, Jesus, I'm all in. Let's do this
0: it's um it's such a it's such a profound um story and it's it rings true it doesn't really matter who you are or what your vocation is this is a story that rings true because we are lost and we are de- desperate and we are empty and we are in need of a savior and help has to come from the outside we literally can't do it ourselves it's a it's such a um it's such a your story is such a portrayal of the gospel itself like help had to come from the outside we could not save ourselves and um so just talk with me a little bit about you know Jesus why does Jesus matter to you who who is Jesus
3: i mean he he's everything first off what you know he completed what i couldn't what god knew i couldn't do and by putting my faith in him reconnected me with God. I'm no longer just his creation. I'm now a child of God because of my faith in Christ crucified. And when that happened, he became my everything. He became my clarity, my strength, my love by turning to scripture and looking at what's going on in the world today. I may not understand everything, but I understand fallen world. I understand sinful nature. I understand everything and it makes sense. So when I say Jesus is my everything, number one, he is my hope for an eternity in heaven, but he is also someone who walks alongside me, leads me. I can fall back into and gain strength when I can't continue on in this world. So to answer that question simply, he's my everything.
0: Yeah. Uh, amen. Amen and amen. Um Jason um as we as we close our conversation today I'd I'd love for you to just speak to those people who are living in darkness um who are considering that their life is not worth saving who don't see a way out um, and I want you to you know invite them to to cry out for the help that's available.
3: Yeah, you know for anyone who's in that desperate situation God has given us so much. Number one, I pray that if you're in a really dark situation right now, you reach out to someone, a crisis line, a help line, a church, a friend. Please reach out right now if you're in that position. But if you're just walking lost and you're in the dark and you're feeling horrible like I did for 28 years, just hop into your Bible. Talk to a Christian, someone who's nice, not someone who's just going to preach down to you but someone that you recognize in your life that actually walks the walk as a Christian, and and ask them some questions, and pray, and talk to God, and grab a Bible, and read through it. But make sure you have people around, because the first time I read through a Bible, I understood nothing. But if we pull people that God gave us into our lives, and we start talking to them about faith-based issues, you'll start seeing the light come on. You'll start seeing the darkness there. Now, don't get me wrong. You'll still have rough times. You're still in this fallen planet, this fallen world, but you will have a starting point and you will have a place to leave all of your problems.
0: Jason, it occurs to me that um, Christians who are listening right now uh, need to have their eyes open and their ears open and their hearts ready to receive those individuals to hear their stories to answer their questions to pray with them and to open the scriptures with them like we need to be prepared to walk alongside those who do turn and say I'm I don't I don't want to live empty like this anymore um and so thank you uh Jason so much for joining us today thank you uh for the book and the contribution to the conversation. Again, friends, the book is The Rescuer, one firefighter's story of courage, darkness, and the relentless love that saved him. Jason Sautel is the author. You can find it all at rescuerbook.com. Jason, thanks so much.
3: Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right
0: back. So thank you for those of you who are texting me at 877-933-2484. I have a listener testimony to share. I also have a clarification from our creed conversation. Okay, so several of you have asked questions about the appearance of the word Catholic in those creeds that we read earlier. Um, And just to, to clarify, the word Catholic in those creeds is a small c Catholic, and it means universal. So I do believe in the universal church. I believe in the reality that there is one body of believers, um, that there is one Christ, and He is undivided. Even though the expressions of the church here are divided denominationally, Christ is not. And so, just to clarify, um, the word "Catholic" in the creed um, is it means the small c Catholic. So thank you for those of you who raised those questions and for those of you who um, raised concerns about that. Okay. And then a listener testimony. Um, it's been a while since I think I've used the phrase divine appointment, but um, certainly I, uh, I have that in my heart and mind when I am suggesting to you each and every day that we go forth into the world that God so loves as ambassadors of the King and the kingdom. I, I am living with the expectation that God has set divine appointments um, that are on his calendar may not yet be on our calendar. Um, and so anyway, keeping those divine appointments, being on the lookout, being ready to uh, be a person that reframes a conversation and advances the gospel. Uh, that's that's who we are. that's how we live. all right. so this listener um, shares. That um, on her way back from, uh, well, she was driving through the country and came across an antique store and saw a swing in the front yard and thought, well, that looks interesting. I'd like to check that out. So went in and upon entering the store, she heard Christian music in the background and the man behind the counter. uh, So she got into a conversation with him about the Christian music that was playing and their favorite Christian music songs. Um, She left the store to try out the swing, and when she walked back in, she noticed a sign on the door that said, please wear a mask. My wife is recovering from brain surgery. That led to a conversation about um, his wife and her surgeries and their ongoing struggles. What she remarks about this man is that he was so content and full of faith and full of joy and expressive of all those things, and that there was no worry or anxiety in his life, although there, there is cause for all of that. So we're going to pray today for Sandy. Um, we're also going to pray for... Um, e- Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.